The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. I'm just back from Belgium for the German Marshall Fund's annual Brussels Forum, where I sat down with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. There was lots to talk about. President Trump's decision on tariffs, his move to meet with the dictator of North Korea. Both were roiling the news cycle when Murphy and I sat down at the Steigenberger Hotel. We talked about those topics and gun control and what makes the activism of the Parkland kids different. I've certainly found them idealistic, but their willingness to very quickly move this debate to the ballot box um, is also pretty pragmatic. Listen to the entire conversation from Brussels right now. Senator Murphy, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So when you landed in Brussels, you sent out a tweet that said, wheels down, representing U.S. at the Brussels Forum, here in Europe's capital, no ambassador to Belgium, no ambassador to EU, 15 months into Trump administration. Why send out that tweet upon landing? Uh, Because it was the first thing that people mentioned to me when I got here. Uh, I didn't just decide to to communicate that. Uh, It was uh, a concern that was raised by several people within the first few hours that I was on the ground. People here in Brussels get it that this administration uh, is not engaged in the transatlantic relationship, is in many ways trying to destroy Europe by associating itself with the forces that are trying to break it up. Um, And it's also emblematic by the fact that there's not much of a representation from the Trump administration at this conference. This is one of the big international transatlantic conferences. There's a few folks from the Trump administration, but certainly not as many as I remember coming from the Obama team. And it has real consequences. Um, We got to realize that, not just for our security as uh, NATO starts to uh, weaken and the Europeans are beginning discussions about standing up their own defense infrastructure separate from the U.S., um, but economic opportunities also wither. We had uh, conversations already today about the Belgians who are thinking about buying new planes, and we were hoping they'd be American planes, but now they're thinking, eh, maybe we should just buy planes from Europe instead because the Americans don't seem that keen uh, on the transatlantic defense relationship. So, you know, that's why I sent it out. And when you say that's the first thing people say to you, when you say people, you mean Europeans. I mean European leaders uh, who are very worried uh, about America's withdrawal from this relationship, very worried about the things that Trump says uh, about Europe, and they uh, they notice. Uh, they notice that um, 15 months in, we don't have an ambassador to the European Union. That's ridiculous. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Um, it's unthinkable. Well, it because, used to be unthinkable. Well, it's unthinkable because we have so many equities at stake with the European Union. There are complicated trade uh, relationships uh, that we have to work out. There are decisions being made here about privacy that affect American citizens. There are lots of Americans who live in Europe uh, that deserve to have an ambassador in Brussels. Uh, it used to be one of the first decisions that a president would make, who the ambassador to the European Union would be. Um, Now, as far as I can tell, there's not any discussion that we'll ever have an ambassador to the European Union, which is, you know, it's so bizarre. So I want to talk about this retreat of American um, sort of leadership in Europe, but in, in the world in a moment. But when it comes to America's standing in the world, 
do people, the people you're talking to, the Europeans, are they concerned not only that the United States is retreating, but that they, meaning Europe, will not be able to rise to the challenge of filling the void, the leadership void? Well, I, I, I think they, I think they are. Um, you, know, you take a look at a challenge uh, like Iran. Um, you know, just unbelievably mixed signals from the administration as to whether we are going to stay in that nuclear agreement or not. The Europeans recognize that they cannot substitute for the United States, that if the United States decides to back out of the nuclear agreement, that Europe by themselves uh, can't put it back together. Uh, So, you know, this used to be a relationship in which we talked regularly and we tried to solve the world's problems jointly and together. Uh, And these days, uh, that's simply not happening. The president is announcing tariffs without talking to the Europeans. He's without talking to his own administration. his own administration. He's, of course, within the last 24 hours, uh, entering into one-on-one negotiations with the North Korea. North Korea. We're going to talk about Korea that. Yeah. Without, again, notifying our allies here in Europe that would have something to say about that. Uh, so, no, the, I think the Europeans are, are very scared of the fact that they are going to be asked to manage a lot of problems, uh, either without the United States or without being given any notification from the United States about what our policy is going to be. And, and the this is what I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned the airplanes, people looking to buy airplanes instead of looking at Boeing, they'll look, they'll look someplace else. How does the tariff decision made by the president impact decisions like that? Well, let's just take my state of Connecticut, a small state, but uh, a state where 40 percent of our exports go to Europe. Um, We are heavily dependent on uh, an export market in which our products end up here. Uh, the steel tariffs, um, you know, are not that big a deal to Connecticut. We're not making a lot of it in our in our state. Uh, but if it sets off a trade war by which it makes it harder for our goods to land in Europe, it could crater some aspects of our uh, industrial base in the state. Uh, so we think a lot about this um, about the, this this potential uh, trade relationship going up in smoke between the United States and Europe. That could really hurt us in our state. Someone I can't remember who it was. But a a key person I was talking to was saying how actually these tariffs might not be such a big deal, ultimately. Um, They were using this whole soup can analogy and the amount of tin and aluminum that's used. And maybe the person will see one cent increase in in soup prices or, or whatever. Does that oversimplify what's at stake here? I mean, listen, I... I want to say this about tariffs. Um, just because a tariff might have a detrimental effect on the U.S. economy doesn't mean that you shouldn't use it. And the fact of the matter is, uh, Trump is right uh, that there has been a trade war between the United States and China for a number of years. It's just that, by and large, China has been the only one fighting it. Um, we have taken some very targeted actions, but not nearly commensurate to the ways in which China manipulates uh, its exports and our trade relationship. Uh, and so I don't mind uh, the use of tariffs to say, Send a message to China. Um, but without pre-baking that with your allies who might be affected by it, without considering the other ramifications for U.S. national security interests, like, for instance, the fact that the tariffs might make China a little less willing to get tough with North Korea uh, in order to try to solve that problem, um, it makes very little sense. Uh, so, again, I, I, I'm not somebody who, who's going to say that, 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 that a small increase in prices isn't worth the message being sent to the Chinese. There 
are just all sorts of uh, other accoutrement around this that don't make a lot of sense. So since we brought up you brought up North Korea twice, let's talk about North yeah. Korea, another region of the world where the United States doesn't have an ambassador. There's no ambassador to South Korea, correct? There's no ambassador to South Korea. There's no special envoy. We have no one on the peninsula representing us at the highest level. And so this announcement that um, the president is going to go and meet with the North Korean leader, with Kim Jong-un, again, sort of like with the tariffs decision, no consultation with allies, no consultation really with his own staff. The Secretary of State was asleep in Africa and not in, not a part of this, this decision. I would love your reaction to what the hell's going on with North, with North Korea and the administration's response, but also what signal does it send to the world that the president makes these decisions and his own staff doesn't even know, senior staff doesn't even know what he's doing and when he's doing it. Well, it, it cuts the legs out from under uh, his senior staff and his primary negotiators. This is not the first time uh, he has embarrassed Secretary Tillerson. There have been moments in which they have been literally uh, on two different pages with respect to major national security issues, uh, like, for instance, the fight between the Saudis, Emiratis, and the Yemenis, and, and, the, and the Qataris, in which uh, Trump and Tillerson were uh, articulating two different policies with Within 24 hours. Um, but yes, it makes it very hard for anyone like Mattis uh, or Tillerson to go represent the United States when people don't believe that they're in the room. Uh, listen, here's my big worry here. Um, what does Kim want? Kim wants a photo op with the president of the United States. He desperately wants to be seen uh, as someone who is on the same standing as the chief executive of the most powerful country in the world. And no North Korean leader has met with a president of the United States since the 40s. That's right. So this is uh, a groundbreaking moment. But what else does he want? He wants to keep his nuclear weapons program. Uh, he does not want to give that program up. And the worst case scenario for the United States is that at the end of this summit, uh, Kim has a photo op with the president, a summit at the highest level, and a nuclear weapons program. And without the kind of pre-work that would normally come before a major summit like this so that you have some assurance that you're going to get some commitments from the North Korea at the meeting, um, Kim may get everything he wants. And this may be, in the end, a major embarrassment for the United States. Maybe not. Maybe Donald Trump walks into that room and is able to convince Kim to give up his nuclear weapons or commit to a long-term freeze. Um, but that would belie uh, the reputation of this president as a negotiator uh, over the last uh, 14 months. Um, his reputation as a negotiator, which is not exactly good. Well, he walked into the guns meeting two weeks ago, pulled me aside uh, in the beginning. He said, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this done. Uh, and then in the two weeks since, he has done nothing to get a guns bill done. And so what if the same thing happens in this meeting? If he walks in with all intentionality to convince Kim to give up his nuclear weapons program, uh, he is unsuccessful or he doesn't do the follow through necessary to be successful. Uh, and in the end, Kim has gotten his photo op. Kim has his uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, that's a disaster for the United States. And one of the pre-baked things that you're talking about with regard to North Korea, aren't there American citizens being held captive in North Korea? 
Right. There, there are. There, there yes. are. That would be one of the things you would want to make sure could be resolved in this meeting. Before you either resolved in the meeting or at least pre-baked enough so that when the president of the United States does sit down with Kim, that at least that's one tangible thing uh, the president could say that he got was the release of prisoners. Correct. Correct. And again, you you really have a worry that this is going to come off without any substantial deliverables. And frankly, even if that was your deliverable, um, uh, you know, that is an important issue. Uh, But the reason we have engaged in this policy towards North Korea is to stop their nuclear weapons program. You've got to have it is not worth having a sit down between the president and the North Korean leader if at the end of that you don't get a commitment that they are going to start winding down that program. If all that comes out of it is a made-for-television event for President Trump, which, you know, the, all the analysis I've seen so far has been that's that's what'll what'll end up happening. Another situation you mentioned the guns where President Trump pulled you inside. We're going to get this done. Another time we saw the president say on national television in a meeting with a bipartisan group of members of Congress was on immigration and how he wanted a bill of love and then. His administration worked actively behind the scenes to kill a bipartisan a bipartisan bill. I bring this up because in one of the sessions, um, a, an American journalist asked or an American asked this question of a member of the Trump administration who was here, basically asked for that person to explain which should Europeans pay attention to: the president's tweets or the president's actions, what he actually does. From my perspective, you can't trust either one right. because either the tweets will be kneecapped by the actions or the actions will, will you know, vice, vice versa. For those people who, who are coming to you and saying, we don't have an ambassador to Belgium or the folks who are saying there's no ambassador to South Korea, how would you advise people to um, analyze this president? Can can they trust him at all? No, I think it's it's I certainly wouldn't pay attention to the tweets as a guide to policy, but the tweets are important in and of themselves because of the regular attacks on you know the pillars of participatory democracy, like the press, uh, like law enforcement, um, the fact that he's willing to t- tweet out or, or uh, videos that are you know very vile, uh, showing attacks by supposed attacks uh, by Muslims against uh, European citizens. So uh, the tweets are important to follow because they are degrading the health of our democracy, which is a communal value of Europe and the United States, but they don't have a lot of predictive value uh, when it comes to the policy from this administration. That's a problem because just in general, you want to be able to have at least a sense of where a president is going to go, uh, the predictability of it, because not only does that does it send signals to the country about where you're moving, but it sends signals to the allies about what's coming down the road. And now allies and certain segments of the American public have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah, but of course, you know, remembering back to the campaign, you know, the president openly uh, advertised his unpredictability as an asset. So it's not as if we didn't see this coming. 
right. the people who voted for him watched him say uh, that sometimes it's good to be a little unpredictable as a leader. So, uh, you know, this is part of the campaign. <laughs> unpredictable as a leader. Because you kind of figure that the the leader has some sort of master plan, but as we've seen, just speaking for myself, there doesn't seem to be really a plan. It just all seems to be, let's just live in the moment right now. Consequences be damned. Right, and and listen, there are there are real global consequences attached to it. Syria. Uh, is continuing to spiral out of control. Yemen is a factor worse than it was uh, before the president uh, took office. Uh, North Korea has sped up its nuclear weapons program since the president um, uh, was sworn in. Um, you know, the world is not a more stable place in part because there is very little predictive value attached to the presidency. You know, one thing that Bob Zelik uh, said, you know, uh, Republican uh, foreign policy establishment very um, excellent reputation. He said at, at a meeting here that the EU needs to know that the United States has a president, but it doesn't have a leader. And I think that's actually a, a good thing to keep in mind. We do have a president, but in terms of, in terms of leadership, for, for what we've been talking about, that's, that hits the nail on the head. Well, and, and Europe is making decisions right now that is going to have real consequences for the United States. So let's take a look for a second at the new European defense initiative. This is an effort by the EU to stand up greater defense capabilities and to engage in greater defense planning. Now, that sounds good, except that that is happening outside of the construct of NATO. Uh, inside NATO, uh, there is also a level of defense planning uh, happening and investment happening. Um, the worry is that as the Europeans feel like they can depend less on NATO and have to stand up their own defense posture separate and aside from NATO, it doesn't obviate the fact that the U.S. still has a treaty obligation to defend Europe. Mm -hmm. And so Europe is now making all of these side plans with respect to the future of their military, um, duplicating much of what NATO is doing, which I think in the end may lead to some massive inefficiencies. Um, and if they ever get attacked, the United States still has to come to their defense. And yet we are now going to have a parallel structure of defense that they are setting up inside the EU. All of that is happening, I think, in large part because they aren't sure that the president is going to stay in NATO. Well, and that, that's what I was thinking. Isn't it smart of, of the EU to set up this redundant system just in case the, the United States reneges on its treaty obligation. But it makes the defense of Europe much harder. So if the EU is engaged in all sorts of complicated conversations about uh, logistics movement um, that the United States is not participating in, and then we get into a conflict with Russia in the Baltics, and we haven't been notified about how the Europeans are going to move military assets around when that conflict comes, it makes it very hard for us to do uh, our job. Uh, add to it, back to the economic question, that as the Europeans stand up their own capacity, um, they're going to be much less likely to buy from the United States. When all of their military planning is done in NATO, um, we tend to be the beneficiary because they often are buying platforms that both the U.S. and the Euro and Europe can use together. Those are often U.S.-made platforms. How surprising is it to you that President Trump has taken no action whatsoever to hold Russia accountable for its interference in the 2016 presidential election. It's not 
that's surprising to me. It's it's obviously disappointing, concerning, outrageous. Uh, but you know, the president has gone back and forth as to uh, his belief um, in the nature of the interference itself. So it's not necessarily shocking that he hasn't decided to uh, apply sanctions. Um, and, and you know, what's um, what's more shocking is that you know some of the people that he has uh, you know hired have um, doubled down um, on um, on his policy. Uh, I was just absolutely flabbergasted to hear Secretary Tillerson about a month ago uh, sound an alarmingly defeatist tone mm-hmm. about 2018. Tillerson said, "Yeah." The Russians are going to probably interfere. And you know what? There's not a lot we can do about it, which is patently false. One of the things you can do about it is sanction the Russians for their 2016 interference so they at least know there'll be a price for 2018. It seems in every way possible the Trump administration is effectively inviting the Russians to interfere in the 2018 elections. And is it just coincidence that they're likely going to interfere on behalf of Republican candidates? I don't know. Well, then, how surprising is it to you that members of the the intelligence community have testified before before Congress when asked very pointedly, "Have you been uh, authorized by the president to take action?" They very diplomatically say no. Right. Not surprising. Again, disappointing, outrageous, all of that. Uh, but. I think, you know, anybody who voted for this president should have, you know, should not have been under the impression that he was going to take a tough line on Russia on their interference in the 2016 election uh, or any of their other malevolent behavior. He effectively invited them to interfere in the 2016 election, uh, asking them to release Hillary Clinton's emails. And by uh, sending his staff out to say that there's nothing we could do to prevent them in 2018, um, he's asking for trouble again. Okay, then how surprised are you, or uh, given what you've just said, maybe not, that congressional Republican leaders have not stepped forward and said, Mr. President, do something. After all, I'm, I, actually, I'm older than you, but I remember a time when the Republican Party was the you know, anti-Russia party. We need to stand up to the, so, to the then Soviet Union and then to you know, Russian aggression. And now they've just rolled over. Yeah, so that's more surprising to me. I mean, I'm very disappointed in my Republican colleagues uh, that they have not been sufficiently serious about Russia's interference. Uh, They've turned these investigative bodies, particularly the House Intelligence Committee, into just a political sideshow. And when the president refused to implement the Russia sanctions, we could have come back um, and passed mandatory sanctions instead of permissive sanctions that allows the president to refuse to implement them. We have uh, yet to do that. And remember, Republicans need to know, as you know, that um, Russians are not Republicans. Um, For for (laughs) the time being, it suits the Russians to try to manipulate elections to the favor of Trump and his allies. Um, But that will not be uh, how this goes for the next 10 to 20 years. There will be a day in which, for whatever reason, the Russians feel like it's in their interest to try to uh, elect Democrats. Who knows? Uh, They'll come after Republicans at some point in the future. And there have been a handful of Republicans who have noted that, but not enough. Gun control. Uh, Recently, you said that, basically, I'm paraphrasing, 
as terrific as it is that the Parkland students have, you know, they've raised their voices and they're out there and they're raising hell, that in basically you think that ultimately they're not going to be successful in in achieving gun control. I get that right? Uh, not completely. What, what, what I've said is that I don't believe that there's ever going to be a tipping point in this debate, that I don't think there's going to be one moment in which we all of a sudden um, have converted the public dialogue, in part because the public is not the problem. Um, you know, this is not an issue that is controversial outside of Washington, D.C., at least with respect to background checks, which is the most important intervention. 97% of Americans in the last poll want background checks. That number isn't below 90 in any state in the country. The problem is that the gun lobby is very, very powerful for a you know interesting and diverse set of reasons. Um, and until Republicans lose an election uh, because they opposed the vast majority of their constituents on this issue, they are not going to break from the gun lobby. And so these students actually can make a difference. I'm just not sure they're going to do it as advocates uh, at the United States Capitol. I think they may do it um, as activists in the 2018 election. Um, I, I can see this debate sort of going back into uh, familiar trenches uh, right now. I don't have a lot of confidence that Trump or McConnell is going to deliver a transformational bill. Um, but I do have confidence that these kids are going to supplement an already pretty mature anti-gun violence movement such that in 2018, a bunch of Republicans are going to lose their seat because they were obstinate on this issue. And you may have the party finally come uh, to the table on background checks in 2019. How much of the view you just expressed has been informed by your experience after Newtown? I remember being on set at MSNBC when the news broke. And the thing that hit me was that this, to my recollection, was the first time little children were targeted for slaughter. And I thought, I was certain then that if 20 people, most of them, most of them children, five, six years old, if anything was going to change the dynamic, that would. And yet it didn't. So my perspective on this issue is absolutely informed by what happened because I thought the same thing. Um, I thought in the wake of you know, that slaughter um, that there was no way we weren't going to get a ban on assault weapons. I never imagined that we would be fighting over background checks, and, and yet we couldn't even get that in the end. And so, you know, at the end of that legislative fight, and remember the, 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 the massacre happens in December and we lose the vote in the early spring, so just a few months later, um, I became convinced that the NRA was ready for those parents. They were ready for that moment. They had spent 20 years building up a political powerhouse so that they could win that fight, and that we had to build up a political infrastructure nationally around the issue of gun violence that would eventually be as powerful as them. But I also knew that day it was going to take us a while. Uh, and I reminded myself that the Brady handgun bill, which established the, the existing background check system, um, was passed 10 years after the attempted assassination of uh, President Reagan and the wounding of James Brady. I hope it doesn't take 10 years, um, but I know now that this is not about a, a, a moment in which th both the public and the political class changes its mind. This is about political power, and we just have to accumulate more of it, and we will. 
Have you met any of the Parkland students? I have. I've met a bunch of them. And what do you make of them? What do you get from, what did you get from them, from talking to them? I think that one of the reasons that they have captured the nation's uh, attention is because, um, you know, that, that there's a purity of voice uh, that comes with youth. Um, you know, we all try to occasionally get back in touch with ourselves, right, when we were 18 years old to think about what our 18-year-old self would have done, right, in a moment that we find ourselves in at 40 or 50. Um, and so when we hear these kids speaking up um, and, 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 and wearing their idealism um, and their innocence um, outwardly, um, it reminds us of our former selves, former selves that we really liked, um, that may have been a little bit truer to our values than who we are today. Um, and I think it's a magical thing to watch them change this debate. Maybe, maybe not to the point that we actually get a bill passed this year, um, but maybe uh, as a means of inspiring lots of other people to turn out in this election uh, on this issue. Do they seem to be more, more realistic than idealistic, when the, at least the ones you've talked to? You know, they are, um, they are interestingly pragmatic in the yeah. sense that they, um, you know, they know that Republicans want to drag them into a debate on the specific policies behind assault weapons definition and background check system. Um, and so they are very smart uh, to say, listen, guys, you're the adults. We're the kids. Fix this or we're voting you out of office. Um, and, and, and that's a very simple message, but it's a pretty savvy message on their part. So no, I've, I've certainly found them idealistic, but their willingness to very quickly move this debate to the ballot box um, is also pretty pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Well, last question to you, since you brought it up. What would you tell your 18-year-old self now that you are a little older, uh, but also a member of Congress. Um, so when I uh, when I was young, I was uh, I was a political organizer out of the womb. So I was organizing all the sports games in the neighborhood. I was running protests at my high school, uh, trying to change the dress code. So you know, I've been organizing my which way. So they so my 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 when they were in high school, they they stopped allowing us to wear hats in school, and which I thought was an outrage. And so I organized all my fellow students to to to, to protest the hat ban. Um, but here's what I would. Remember, I remember when I was young, um, being told that I was too young, that I couldn't get done what I thought I was going to get done. I remember, I don't remember how old I was, but I scribbled down on a piece of paper, push, push, and I stapled it up to the wall over my desk, um, just as a daily reminder to me that all of these adults were going to tell me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, and they were wrong, and all I had to do every single day was push. Um, and there are a lot of days in Washington in which I want to stop pushing, <laughs> in which it just feels like the status quo is too enormous, that the NRA is too powerful. Um, and I, I just remember that little piece of paper that I taped to my desk um, 25 years ago. Um, my, my, my younger self um, didn't allow anybody who had more experience than me or more power than me to tell me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Um, and I just try to remind myself of that person and that note every single day. Senator Chris Murphy from the great state of Connecticut, member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.